This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Type. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. I'm Laurie Rader Day. Hey, I'm Lou Bernie. This is Lawrence Black. This is Rachel Housel Hall. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> that's a great question. Hey, this is Brian Panowich, and you're listening to Writer Type with Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. Welcome to the show. Thank you for listening. I'm Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon. And Steve, it's our big summer kickoff show. Who's with us today? It's the Writer Type Summer Stravaganza! <laughs> was that what I was I not supposed to? Were you thinking we could go a different direction maybe with the intro? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I like where you're going. <laughs> Listen, when you have this much content packed in to an hour of podcast goodness, you need some kind of heralding of the awesomeness. <laughs> well, sell it, Steve. Sell it for the people. Well, I don't need to sell it when you've got guests like Owen Laukinen, who lets us inside his darkest fantasies. Who wouldn't want to be tied up by a billionaire? Billionaire bondage. And Stephanie Gale recounts what happened when she first learned she was going to be a guest on Writer Types. I almost tripped and fell flat on the sidewalk and lost a couple of teeth. But wait, there's more. Author Greg Heron tells us how being on Writer Types saved his life. Going to a really fun place where you can just laugh everything off kept me from becoming an alcoholic, probably. And finally, Carter Wilson says what we're all thinking. I like the idea that I can kill anybody at any minute. Plus, we get a summer book preview from the Malmans. But first, Steve, what is this amazing song we're listening to? That song you're hearing right now, Eric, is Angeline, which is the very first single from my new band, The Brothers Steve. new band you got a new band you've got a new novella that'll be the day out you are on a tear with this power pop stuff uh yes that is very true and it's all in anticipation of the essay collection about power pop that i'm co-editing with paul myers that's due out in october but mostly it's about the fact that i'm turning 50 this weekend and i wanted to sneak as many projects in before i was an old man as i possibly could (laughs) Well, congratulations. The song sounds great. The rest of the album that I've heard, uh, I got a little sneak peek at it, sounds great. Uh, Where can people find this? I think the best place to find this stuff is at thebrothersteve.com. Like I mentioned, Angeline and Carol Ann are the first digital single, which came out from Big Stir Records uh, on Friday. And then the full album will be made available on vinyl at the end of July. Oh, spin in the wax. I like it. Old school. Yes, well, as we just established, you are very old. I can't be caught here in your lifeless room, no. All right, well, Steve, we got a lot of guests to get to, so let's jump right in. Owen Laukinen is back with a new book, and he's also back with us on Writer Types. Deception Cove is the start of a new series, and this one is his most personal book yet. That's right. The story was inspired by and features his own dog, Lucy. So we caught up with Owen and talked about the new book and some of the less glamorous sides of writing. 
And bondage, Eric. We also talked about bondage. <laughs> well, Owen, welcome back to Writer Types. Your, your return visit with your brand new book, Deception Cove. Congratulations. It's an excellent book. Thank you. You say that uh, angrily. I, I emphatically. Like, I, like, I like the passion. Yeah, emphatically. <laughs> We also refer to this course as the Lucy book because it is it features and is inspired by uh, your dog Lucy, who is an internet sensation at this point. But most people who write a book inspired by their dog come up with, you know, Marley and me or my dog Skip or something that's maybe a little more lighthearted or kind of memoir, not necessarily something that's about an ex-con and crooked cops and a former Marine and it's it's a thriller. So what about sitting around and looking at Lucy as she sleeps at your feet inspired you to come up with this type of story? I think you've hit the nail on the head because a lot of what she does is sleep and kind of sulk and fart. So if I were to do a memoir, it'd be tough to fill 300 pages. <laughs> She's perfect for my lifestyle because that's all I do. Uh, but, but no, I mean, I think she's the first pit bull I've ever had. And when you become a pit bull owner, you become kind of militant about the idea that these dogs are like more than just like for fighting and, and you know, that they're not as bad as everyone says. And so I kind of wanted to write a book that channeled a bit of that. And that also maybe kind of did the same thing with people in prison. Like, I guess there's a TV show, but but I got into the these YouTube clips of when they bring dogs into prison so that convicts can kind of train them. And I thought, geez, that'd be a really good idea for a book right there. You know, a convict training a dog. And then when the dog is sent off to, to its new owner and gets into trouble, what would this convict do when he found out? And so that was kind of my starting point. That could be you, Lucy, if only you would get off the couch. <laughs> Do something with your life. <laughs> oh, and one of the first rules you learn in writing crime and mystery fiction is that you have free reign to kill as many people in your book as you want oh, yes. to. But under no circumstances are you to ever, ever, ever kill a dog. Is Deception Cove that rule writ large? You know, it's funny because people still ask me if the dog survives the book and <laughs> i have a commercial mindset here i'm not, that'd be the end of my career if i killed the, killed the dog in a book it's the lucy book but by the way she dies halfway through in the, in the grisliest most heartbreaking way ever also it's the first book in a series and i don't think people are going to buy the next book if the dog doesn't make it so it, do you think though that's like some psychological scarring that we have as a society because of old yeller which was the name of the book wait a minute wait a minute what what, what happened at the end of old yeller <laughs> oh that's the book where you find out santa claus doesn't exist oh <laughs> just ruining dreams on writer types <laughs> yeah our core listenership is, is the eight to nine year old demo yeah and they're just furious right now. <laughs> Well, after the six Stevens and Windermere novels, uh, so you, I mean, you got pretty deep into a series. Were you anxious then to kick off a new series, or were you thinking that you were going to sort of move around a little bit more before you settled down? Or once you locked into this idea, was it like, oh yeah, no, this is a series. Let's let's run with it. Really, I think I just wanted to write. I'd been reading like David Joy. I was reading a lot of Ace Atkins uh, Ranger series. 
you know, Brian Panovich and, and stuff like that and, and wanting to do something kind of similar for the Pacific Northwest or something where, where place geography, I think like J Todd Scott in West Texas is a similar geography is plays a huge role in, in those books. And I wanted to do something similar where Stevens and Windermere were kind of, you know, every place. And I wanted to do something that takes place in this, in this geographical area that I love and that I feel can be as much a character as, as Mississippi or West Texas or North Carolina. Even though Deception Cove itself is a, is made up, but the larger the Nia Bay, if I'm pronouncing that right, is, is a real place. It is, yeah, about as close to British Columbia, Canada, as you could get. So I can, you know, I could pretend that I'm writing about Canada while setting it in a place that's palatable to you, American bastards. <laughs> the Olympic Peninsula is perhaps best known for for being the home of the Twilight Town. What, is it, what does it say that I had no idea that was where Twilight was set? Is that a good thing? I think that's a good thing. Okay, yeah, right. no, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, since we're talking about Twilight, which of the three books was your favorite? <laughs> oh, man. I, you know, I was partial to Fifty Shades of Grey. That's more in my wheelhouse, I think. Because who wouldn't want to be tied up by a billionaire? <laughs> the vampires I could do without, but the, the billionaire bondage. Uh, I wanted yeah. to talk a little bit about Project Nomad or hashtag Project Nomad, which sure. was a series of uh, often confessional blog and social media posts that you launched last year. Looking back on it now, what inspired you to get so publicly honest about yourself and about your experiences in publishing? Well, I think it was part of a broader theme of just being honest in general, I had uh, I had been or you know been nomadic for all of last year, and it had come on the heels of a kind of traumatic breakup, and also kind of reaching a point with the Stevens and Windermere books where it was kind of like, okay, that's run its course. What happens next? And uh, and so I moved to like my parents' farmhouse on the east coast. I learned how to cook healthy food. I you know did a lot of healthy working out and stuff and kind of just focused on being better and trying to then impart some of that publicly. I've, I've always felt that, you know, when it comes to talking about mental health issues, the more you can talk about it and bring it into the mainstream, the better. And I think that there's a bit of a, a bit of a overlap between writers and the mentally ill <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, not to, not to draw too many parallels, but in publishing, there's a lot of, I think, pressure to pretend as though everything is perfect. You know, we all, when we get a book deal, our, our lives are great and our sales are great and stuff. And, you know, there's pressure to be kind of magazine cover glossy at all times. And I thought, well, you know, it, it hasn't really panned out for me that way. And I feel like there are other authors who could benefit from knowing how, I, how I've really experienced this and, and the kind of anxiety and the, the reality that underlies it all. I think there's value in, in pulling back the curtain and talking about the struggles that we all face in this industry. Yeah, I, I found it incredibly inspirational. And I was uh, amongst uh, the group of many, many, many authors who looked at your career and look at your career as something that I actually still aspire to. And uh, it was good for me to hear that there is no room where they put a gold crown on your head uh, and everything's going to be just fine. But I also really love that you 
seem to have turned a corner and recommitted yourself to writing in the last six to 12 months after you went through this period of questioning it, which I think is really beautiful because you kind of worked it out in public. Is that your take on how it all went down? Yeah, and, and first of all, thanks so much for the kind words. I mean, I admire and enjoy both of your books immensely. And so, you know, just to just to get feedback from you guys is wonderful. I'm, I'm gonna edit this out, just, I'm just telling you now. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just make me sound like an asshole <laughs> as best you can. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really have rediscovered earlier this year. I just thought, well, you know, when I wanted to get into this industry in the first place 10 years ago, I quit my job and I just wrote, you know, five, 6,000 words a day. And I was churning out like a novel a month. And, and that's how I found an agent and got a book deal. And that, for me, it's the best part of writing. It's been fun. I've been I've been working really hard this year, but remembering why I chose this uh, insane career in the first place. Yeah, rediscovering that passion—that's important. Yeah. Now, Lucy, in the book, is she's kind of a, she's a therapy dog, for, you know, for this ex-marine Jess who, who has PTSD. And I know your Lucy, in the real life Lucy, you know, she's not saving you from wartime flashbacks or anything, but anybody who's owned a good dog knows that they are a bit of a security blanket. Oh yeah. Would you recommend a good dog for any writer out there who's going through the traumas of trying to have a writing career? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I, I would recommend a good dog for anyone, but as a, as a writer, one of the ways that I fell back in love with writing this book, Deception Cove was, was walking her, uh, you know, four or five miles, and I would uh, kind of look at her and and think about what I wanted to write about her that day, or what I wanted to write about the, the story, and I would kind of race home and immediately start typing it out. Which, uh, you know, as a professional writer, is you know, I think you guys can attest to, to when you're in the middle of a book. Sometimes you just like it's a slog, you know, you, you don't really want to write the next chapter, but you want the book to be done. And, and with this book, just walking Lucy every day and, and thinking about what I wanted to write, it was that kind of meditative state where by the time I got home, it was as though the stuff was written and I just had to get it on the page. So she's been great for that. And then also just, you know, from a mental health standpoint, I think as writers, we spend a lot of time in our own heads and whether it's a dog or, a family, I think it's it's good to just have something that to focus on that that is beyond just like thinking about yourself all the time, and that's probably a good rule of thumb as a human being, not just a, a writer. Yeah, I, I've I've never been inspired while I'm walking my kids, though. Have you, Steve? <laughs> uh, yes. The answer to that question is yes. I'm inspired daily by my children, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got me. So, Owen. If in some sort of Freaky Friday twist, you, Owen Laukinen, the person, could uh -huh. be magically transported into the world of one of your books or series, which one would it be? I would probably uh, Gale Force, which came out last year. This is a sad story. Um, <laughs> oh, well, please tell not, it on our podcast. Not what I was going for with the Freaky Friday reference, but by it's, all means, Owen. It's it's not actually a sad story. It's I'm colorblind, and so I you guys know that I love trains, 
you may not know that I also love ships and I come from a family of seafarers and, and fishermen and, 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 you know, boat builders. And, and it was always my dream to work on ships and see the world and which you can't do if you're colorblind. And I found this out after I'd applied to maritime college and been accepted and had to do like a certification exam and flunked the colorblindness part. And there went my dream. Like if only I could tell the difference between red and green, I'd be on those ships. I'd be doing something and I wouldn't have to write these damn books anymore, but here we are. Wow, is it is it the flags? Like you can't tell the colors of the flags? Or is it, why, why is colorblindness uh, rule you out from piloting a ship? Uh, because ships operate, uh, if you're in a shipping channel and there's like a reef on either side, you keep the red to your right and you keep the green to your left. So you have to know the difference between red and green because the, you know, the traffic signals or whatever are red and green that I cannot distinguish. So that's why I would like to freaky Friday myself into gale force with the caveat that I can tell the difference between red and green. Oh, and last time you visited us, we ended up doing an impromptu book giveaway for uh, gale force with the <laughs> phenomenal hashtag tugboat thriller. Yes. And I'm wondering if this time you would consider giving away a book signed by you and paw printed by Lucy for the hashtag Pitbull Thriller. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with the tugboat thriller one last time. So yeah, let's do it again. That was that was wonderful. <laughs> well, okay, writer types listeners, uh, find us on Twitter and hashtag this at Pitbull Thriller and tell us what the title of your Pitbull Thriller would be. Or hell, at like any dog. You know, Listen, if someone has a good pun about a, you know, Yorkie or something. I... <laughs> As the owner of two pugs, I can tell you there's nothing thrilling about them. <laughs> now I've met those pugs and, they, you know, yeah. they're thrilling in their way. <laughs> That's n- I, I, Eric, I'm thinking pug boat thriller. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, my God. jeez. Oh, <laughs> All right. Well, it's another giveaway, another hashtag Pitbull Thriller. Uh, I really hope people find us on Twitter and send us their Pitbull or, as Owen said, any other dog uh, thriller titles. I think this is going to be a really fun contest for the dog days of summer. And I think the cozy authors are going to smash everyone with this because they're so used to working in puns and stuff with their titles. That's my hope. Well, Steve, June is Pride Month, and a great pick for this, or frankly any other month, is Stephanie Gale's Idol series featuring police chief Thomas Lynch, who just happens to be gay. Stephanie joined us from her home in Massachusetts, and we talked about the late 90s, loving your main character, and lots of cake. Not the band. (laughs) We could have talked about cake, the late 90s band, and cake, the dessert, in the same sentence, and we blew it. Well, Stephanie, thank you for joining us on Writer Types. Your Thomas Lynch novels take place in a small Connecticut town. Now, I grew up in a small Connecticut town. Is there a particular town in Connecticut that inspired Idol? No. Geographically, it is located where, like, Tolland, Connecticut is located. So that's the best baseline I can give you. Which is where? I don't don't recognize it. It's the Northeast. So close to Massachusetts where you are. Yeah, somewhat. Okay. So not, and and is it probably not too dissimilar from a town you grew up in? Yes, that is true. Uh, I think Idle might be technically a little smaller, but I definitely wanted a town small enough that their police department 
wasn't large enough for it not to feel claustrophobic. So I wanted a very, very small police department. Can we get an exact population? Oh, Lord. <laughs> I did figure it out once. But with every book I write, I feel as though I flushed my brain of all the information that I gathered so I can gather more information for the next book. So I knew that in book one. I'm going to say somewhere between eight and 12,000. All right, we will fact check this and get back to you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, in addition to setting the book in a small town, th the books are set in the 90s, which you know doesn't necessarily qualify as historical fiction, but it's not exactly contemporary. W why did you choose that time period? Um, it's funny, I chose it because the very first draft of this novel of Idle Threats had a lot more to do with police brutality. And it, it specifically had to do with a very specific case that I was um, sort of basing it loosely on, which involved uh, a police officer who choke holds someone and ended up killing him. And then that draft of the story went away largely, but the time period stayed in part because Thomas is gay. And in the late nineties, out officers were a rarity and out police chiefs, I do not even think existed. So it made sense for a lot of the cultural touchstones um, to stay in the late 90s. And um, I like that period. So I enjoy remembering the late 90s. <laughs> Reliving a little bit of your glory days? Is that what it, it is? <laughs> did, did, I mean, you, did you, to get yourself back in that mindset, yeah. were you playing a lot of 90s music and stuff like I that? I was listening to some late 90s music. I was going back and sort of looking at, at those wonderful clothing. Some really inspired stuff, especially for women. There's a lot of plaid. It was good times. And it, it, that's fun because when you have a slightly older person, like you can make them hate everything that is contemporary. <laughs> 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 Which I'm now, I'm now, I think the age that Thomas was in the first book, maybe. So I have grown into his, what the heck is this? feeling <laughs> about contemporary music. You have, you have a lot of maybes. You don't remember a lot of details about your own books, do you? I told you. <laughs> <laughs> just all drops right out of your head. It, oh my God, well, I have to make room. Well, you just mentioned the first book, Idle Threats, mm -hmm. um, and you. we also touched on this a little bit. Let, let's dive into it. Um, sure. The new police chief, Thomas Lynch, has a, a secret, but it's not your sort of typical crime fiction secret, like he murdered someone or he's being blackmailed. It's yeah. that he doesn't want to reveal that he's gay. So mm -hmm. how did you come up with that idea as a plot driver? It was a mix of things. And I didn't come to it right away when I was writing the book. But usually when I'm writing books, my characters talk to me. I mean, this is a writing podcast and no one's going to freak out. People talk to me who aren't real. Uh, but he wasn't very chatty. And I was having a really hard time getting my handle on him. And so in, in a sheer act of desperation, I went running, which is like, absolute last resort it's, it's, it's taking time off and then if i must i will put on my sneakers and run but i was running and i thought oh maybe it's maybe it's something romantic like oh yeah maybe he's had an affair and then i just thought what if he's gay and i almost tripped and felt flat on the sidewalk and lost a couple teeth but i didn't and i thought yeah that makes so much sense this explains why he's closed off from his colleagues this explains why he doesn't really want to make friends in the new town and why he holds himself at a distance from a lot of people because he's sort of playing this elaborate act. Yeah, well, that, that works. I'm glad you didn't hurt yourself coming up with that idea. <laughs> Me too. 
Well, you, you did write a, a standalone novel before the Idol series. What what about that one didn't feel like it had legs to be a series versus this one that that has made it now three books in and, and hopefully with more to come? I didn't like the main character as much. If you're going to write a series, I think you really have to love your main character. And I don't mean like love romantically or even, even like in the sense of like you like other people, but you have to feel invested in this character. You have to care about what happens next. And while I liked Natalie, who was the protagonist of the first book, I felt as though her story was done. And when I finished the first Idol book with Chief Lynch, I was really curious as to what his journey would be. And I, I myself wanted to know. And I think if you're going to write a series, you would do well to want to follow your character. Otherwise, it's a real drag. <laughs> well, you uh, in your bio, you list baking as one of your hobbies. Uh, yes. So if we were to come over to your house and have you entertain, what is your go-to baked item? Oh, well, right now I happen to be baking. <laughs> so there's, something, there's something in the oven right now, literally? Uh, no, the cakes are cooling. And I'm waiting for the egg whites to come up to temp and the butter to come to room temperature so I can make the, so it's burnt honey buttercream frosting cake with chocolate. Wow. So yellow cake, layer of chocolate and a layer of um, burnt honey buttercream. It's the first time I've ever made this. So this is not my go-to. The amount of butter in it is worrisome. <laughs> But my go-to right now is I finally learned how to make apple pie and I am so effing proud of myself that I just keep trotting that one out. Like, look at me, I can make a pie crust. It's a classic, that's a classic right there. It's a classic, but pie crusts are really hard and it doesn't help when you like, when I was learning how to make it, my mother would say helpful things like, well, didn't you look at Nana's recipe? It's super easy. And I'm like, it's not, it's not super easy. Dark magic is involved and none of you women will tell me. <laughs> Your bio also describes you as quote unquote, quite competitive. Yeah. And I'm kind of wondering how that manifests itself in the publishing world. Like, are you busting kneecaps at writer's conferences? No, I, that's actually probably the one place where I am inversely not competitive. In fact, I am much better at promoting other people's works than my own, which is why I, I sell so fantastically. <laughs> Doing real good, real good work here. Tens of copies. What's well, I, I, I was going to suggest you use a pen name, but it's not working for me either. So I don't know what oh, the secret is to selling books. We haven't figured it out. That does actually, now I hadn't thought about that, but I could pretend as if I am shilling for someone else. Man, that never occurred to me. I always thought when people say like, oh, do you publish under your own name? One, thank you for not knowing who I am. And two, <laughs> of course I do. You think I spent years working on something and then I just, you know, decided to smack someone else's name on it? Oh. <laughs> I, I, we may have cracked the code on actually selling books. Is, I yeah. think you have. Congratulations. I'm here to tell you guys it doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> I'm disappointed. I really thought I made a breakthrough. I mean, maybe it'll work for you. I don't know. <laughs> so back to my competitiveness, it is much more aimed at things like games. Oh, you're, you're, so we don't want to sit down and play a game of Scrabble with you. I mean, maybe. <laughs> How good are you? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if you like to lose. Yeah. I mean, growing up in my family, trash talk was like 75% of playing Scrabble. So yeah. I think that's actually in the rules. It's like when I play Monopoly with people and they're like, wow, you're really competitive. I'm like, that's what this game is about. It's about, it's about money. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, Monopoly, especially you're, the goal is to crush your uh, other opponents. It's true. Yeah. Same with shoots and ladders. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, board games are on the agenda the next time we see you at a conference, Stephanie. And Excellent. thank you. Thank you for joining us on Writer Types today. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday and the rest of your baking. And, and I'll look for the package when you send us those cakes. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm not lying. Ten sticks of butter, y'all. Wow. <laughs> yes. But, you know, you can pack that on dry ice and send it to us. It'll It'll make it here, right? It probably won't make it past my spouse. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's arbitrary, Eric, but I'm hoping that the cake has a file in it, like you would send in the, like a 1940s comedy about prison, just because of the theme of the show and what we do. I think that would be a nice touch. That could be like her, her signature move. Great cake, but I broke five teeth. <laughs> Well, as long as we're talking about Pride Month, we wanted to talk to one of the most prolific and accomplished writers of LGBT fiction publishing today. Greg Heron lives in and writes about New Orleans with multiple series that feature gay protagonists. He's an award winner and has been writing about gay characters since a time when, you know, they weren't always welcome in bookstores. So you're a very prolific author of over 30 books, and you are one of the biggest names in LGBT fiction, but... Do you feel that you've been put into that category by the industry or have you purposely planted your flag there? When I first started publishing, you didn't really have a choice. My original publisher was LGBT publisher. And back in the day, there were actually gay bookstores and gay newspapers and gay magazines. And so there was very little crossover between mainstream from us and in, into the mainstream, but they were able, we were able to find our readers but we don't have those options anymore. All the gay bookstores are closed. There's, I only think there's maybe two left, if that. Wow. When I was first getting started and my first book came out, the publicist at the publisher and I tried to position me as just a mystery writer, not as a gay mystery writer, even though we were gay press. My book was about a gay man and I'm a gay man. And several independent mystery bookstores absolutely would not allow me in their store, would not allow me to have an event in their store. And in fact, one of them even said to my publicist, I don't carry that kind of, those kind of books in my store. Wow. And hung up on him. Oh. And she's still in business. No. Oh. But I'll never set foot in her store and I'll never <laughs> buy anything from her, nor will I write, have anything to do with her. Yeah. Well, Get bit by a rattlesnake bitch. <laughs> Well, given all the changes that have occurred since you published the first Chance McLeod mystery in 2002, do you think that you could create that same character now if you were launching him as a new series? No. Really? Part of the reason why I ended the series is because the world has changed so much. And that character was deeply conflicted about his sexuality and who he was when I first, when I, and I did that deliberately. His parents were, he was from a small town in rural Texas and his parents were evangelical Christians and there was a lot of self-loathing plus the dichotomy of him being an athlete versus being a gay athlete and having to be in the closet as a scholarship athlete in college that affected all of who he was. It would be hard to make that realistic today Plus, I was tired of writing about somebody who was so miserable all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 
you had several years there where you were writing Scotty Bradley and Chance McCloud series concurrently and sort of bouncing back and forth between the, the two characters. Was it hard sometimes to jump between those two leads or did, it, did writing one book sort of clear out the cobwebs for the other series? It saved my sanity, actually, writing them both. Chance is, like I said, he's very, very conflicted and very, very unhappy and very, very not at peace with himself, whereas Scotty is a completely different person. I mean, he's never had any issues with his sexuality. He's never had any issues with anything. He's just a really happy person who just takes life as it comes and always sees that even something awful that happens is just like, okay, it's just a challenge to get through. So going from a really dark place and writing a chance book and then going to a really fun place writing Scotty where you can just laugh everything off, you know, kept me from becoming an alcoholic probably. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it made me a better writer rather than sticking with one thing and focusing on the one thing, expanding what I do and doing something completely different in between. And I was told by both publishers having sometimes I would have two books out in a year and I was told that that was not smart marketing wise because my books would compete with each other. Yeah. I would think people would read them both. No arrogance there, <laughs> but, but it never was a problem. It's never been a problem. And now people are writing two books a year all the time. It's like, I like to think of myself as a trendsetter yes. <laughs> in that way. Well, and you also like, especially with with a lot of your short fiction. I mean, you you sort of genre hop a little bit, and you've got you've got erotica, and then you sort of delve into the almost horror stuff. I mean, is is all of that a way to to kind of keep it fresh and interesting for yourself as you write? It is. It is. Um, I never wanted to be an erotica writer, which is really I'm, I call myself the accidental pornographer. <laughs> Back in the day, when I was first getting started there was no market for gay short stories or short stories with gay characters in them. But you, there was a huge market for erotica, for gay erotica. So I basically would just take a story and then put a sex scene in it. Uh-huh. And it's really funny because I think about that every once in a while. It's like, I should go back and you to dig up all those erotica stories that I published and take the sex scene out and see what happens with them now that there's a market for it. That would be interesting. Characters. Your next book is another in the Scotty Bradley series, and it's actually a Christmas-themed book set in your native New Orleans. What does a Christmas book look like set in a place where it never snows? <laughs> it does snow here every once in a while, not very often. I think it snowed, it snowed three or four times since I lived here. It's hysterically funny when it snows here. <laughs> The entire city completely shuts down. We're warned not to get on the roads and to don't leave your house unless you absolutely have to. And businesses close and city hall closes and schools are canceled. I'm like, it's snow. <laughs> so yeah, Christmas, New Orleans is really fun in Christ, at Christmas time though, because the whole, New Orleans is all, is all about holidays. New Orleans is all about decorating. New Orleans is all about dressing up. So you can just imagine what Christmas is like here because the whole city is decorated. It's beautiful. Well, now, Greg, I, I noticed that you accompany almost all of your social media posts where I follow you with, with photos of, of handsome, muscular <laughs> young men, I think, to, to grab people's attention. And I'm just wondering uh, how it has happened that you have yet to use any photos of Steve and I. I don't have any. Oh. 
Yeah, it was a solicitation for sexting, Eric. Is that what that was? <laughs> Basically, I think so, yeah. Actually, it's really funny how that actually came about because how I started doing that was when my, my blog used to cross post to Facebook. When I posted it, it would automatically post to Facebook. And if I didn't have a picture, it would just show up on my Facebook page with a big square blue pencil which I hated and it drove me crazy. And so I started putting pictures in and it was, sometimes it would be pictures of books, sometimes it would be pictures of New Orleans. And then one day I posted, I just posted a picture of a hot guy and that just seemed to really get a lot of attention. So I thought, oh, all right, shirtless men it is. <laughs> well, other than the obvious tip of post pictures of hot guys on your blog so it cross posts to Facebook, after publishing more than 30 books, what wisdom do you have to share with aspiring authors or writers who are less successful than you? Oh, if they're less successful than me, they need to quit. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a crazy business. And my path is not one that I would recommend that anyone follow. So when people ask me for advice, I'm always like, don't do what I did because <laughs> I've done everything wrong. I kind of screwed myself. This is a this is a funny, stupid Greg story. So when I was with my previous publishers, you know, they would email me about another book when I'd turned one in, and then I would send them all these ideas I would have for books that I would want to write. And Allison would always say, "Okay, well, we'll take another chance book." And Kensington would say, "Okay, well, we'll take another Scotty book and ignore all the others." So when I moved to this new publisher. They, okay, we're putting the schedule together for next year. What do you want to write? And I sent them a list of five books that I wanted to write with a paragraph description. And they sent me five contracts. Oh, wow. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay. Now I have to write them. You were only supposed to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying that it's not completely outside the realm of possibility that uh, your podcast erotica book starring Steve and Eric uh, is, <laughs> is an actual possibility. Oh, no, it's, oh, it's, ha it's on. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for the, the cover photo shoot. <laughs> I don't know about you, Eric, but I already pre-ordered that book. <laughs> well, Steve, summer is here, and a lot of people look forward to the season as a time to get some quality reading done. Our resident reviewers, the Malmans, are here with some picks for you for your summer reading list. Hi, Eric and Steve. This is Dan. And Kate. And we're here to give you a sneak peek on some books that we've already had a sneak peek on that we think everybody out there in podcast land uh, should be able to take a peek at. Kate, what do you got for us? Okay, my first book is End of the Ocean by Matthew McBride. This comes out June 11th from Polis Books. And I really, really loved Matthew McBride's debut novel, Frank Sinatra in a Blender, and I was super excited when I found out he was having a book come out in 2019. In End of the Ocean, it's about a man named Sage who's recently divorced and runs to Bali to forget about his failed marriage and spend all his time drinking on the beach. While he's on the beach, he ends up meeting a woman, falls in love, and finds himself wrapped up with a group of drug smugglers. This is great Matthew McBride writing where he's writing about desperate people in desperate situations making bad decisions and you can't help but keep reading to find out how bad this is going to get and where it's going to go next 
Uh, the other book that I think everyone needs to read this summer is The Warehouse by Rob Hart. This comes out August 20th from Crown Publishing. And this book is set in the near future where a large Amazon-like company called Cloud has become the largest employer in the country. And Hart dives headfirst into a world of corporate espionage, drug abuse, and Big Brother as an employer. There's been a lot of buzz about this book, uh, and Hart has absolutely earned every single piece of media attention that this book has gotten, and I think everyone else needs to go out and get it in August. So what are you looking forward to reading this summer, Dan? I had a chance to take uh, an early sneak peek at Jay Stringer's new adventure novel, Mara Chase and the Conqueror's Tomb. Uh, This was just a whole lot of fun. It's a globetrotting adventure starring a lady archaeologist who isn't always working on the side of the angels. The story takes all the best Indiana Jones tropes, leans hard into them, then in turn turns them on on its head. Uh, Just a, a super fun read. Perfect for beach style reading, I would say, or out by the pool, because it's fast moving, um, has a lot of interesting takes, um, and it's just super enjoyable, fun stuff. Fans of pulp novels are really going to enjoy this one. That's July 2nd from Pegasus Books. And then a book that I had a chance to read early on this year was The Stories You Tell by Kristen LaPianca. This is the third book in the Roxanne Weary series. LaPianca continues to tell gripping PI stories set in Ohio. Fans of the Jessica Jones uh, Netflix show are really going to love this series. As a fan of PI fiction, I can honestly say that the Roxanne Weary series has quickly become one of my favorite ongoing series as well. So this is July 9th from Minotaur Books. Um, This is a big time summer for a lot of really great books. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Love to hear what you guys are looking forward to as well. Back to you guys. Some great picks, Steve. Uh, What are you looking forward to this summer? My list is pretty long, but I'll keep my recommendations moving because I've already started my summer reading with the 900-page cyber thriller Fall by Neil Stevenson, which I'll probably still be reading in August. (laughs) Uh, Like the Malmans, I'm looking forward to Rob Hart's book, The Warehouse. And Alex Segura, who's another friend of the show, has a new Pete Fernandez mystery out this summer called Miami Midnight. I'm also definitely going to get to Joe Perry's latest Charlie and Rose book, Dead is Beautiful, And I'm really looking forward to Attica Locke's next Darren Matthews book, Heaven My Home. And then last but not least, Joe Nesbo has a new Harry Hole book out this summer called The Knife, and you know I'm going to read that. And an honorable mention goes to Laura McHugh's The Wolf Once In, because I feel like this show played a small part in naming that one. (laughs) Absolutely. That's Yeah, you, you got a full summer ahead of you. Oh, yeah, I'm going to buy all those books. We'll see if I actually finish them by the end of the year. (laughs) How about you, Eric? Well, uh, I can definitely recommend to all our listeners Deception Cove by Owen Laukinen. You heard about it earlier, and I do think it's one of his best books. So I think everyone should read that. And, you know, one of the good things about being an author and and doing the podcast is we do get some sneak peeks at stuff. So I can wholeheartedly recommend uh, Never Look Back by Allison Galen. Oh, yeah. Talk about a book about a podcasting team, right? Some podcasters in there. It's got uh, a husband named Eric. Uh, And I should be mad at Allison because uh, none of those things turn out all that well. But (laughs) the book itself uh, was really great and just so many like whiplash inducing twists and turns. It's it's pretty amazing. I also had a chance to take an early look at The Hard Stuff by David Gordon. Uh, And David was a guest on the show with his book, The Bouncer. And this is a sequel to that. And as wild and action-packed as the bouncer was, the hard stuff is actually even crazier. So I would definitely recommend that. 
and then also, like uh, Dan and Kate said, Mara Chase and the Conqueror's Tomb by Jay Stringer is was one of the most fun reads that I've had all year. And I think that I'm really excited for that to be an ongoing series because I think Jay's going to have a lot of fun with this character going forward. Seems really right in his wheelhouse. Yeah, you can tell he's writing that with such joy and it's almost like he, he kind of opened the gates and just let himself run wild a, a, as an author so it, it really comes off the page that way well eric another one to add to the list is the dead girl in 2a by our next guest carter wilson you know carter's written several standalone thrillers but this is unlike anything he's written before and you know maybe unlike anything you've ever read So the dead girl in 2A starts with a really intriguing premise of this man talking with the girl seated next to him on this flight, finding out that she's on her way to commit suicide. It's such a great hook, but then it, the book kind of quickly veers into some pretty deep territory about identity and memory and, and recovering the past. I, I want to know from you, like, how do you describe this book that's definitely not a typical thriller? Yeah, it's not typical at all. Um, yeah, I, I really describe it as a book about memory. So my, my father passed away uh, from, from Alzheimer's. And there's a thread of memory in a lot of my books. And I finally wanted to just kind of have a book that was full on about memory. But I never know what I'm going to write about. I, I kind of have a general thought. And in the case of The Dead Girl in 2A, like most of my books, I just think of an opening scene and that's it. And I spend the entire rest of the book trying to figure out what that scene means. And I just love the idea that these two people were seated next to each other. They were viscerally convinced that they knew each other. And they spend the entire flight trying to figure out how their lives may have overlapped. And really the only thing that they have in common is that neither of them remember their childhood and then the woman confesses to the man that she's going to her destination to kill herself so that's kind of what was the entire setup and knowing that it was going to be that setup and a book about memory you know i just kind of set about saying okay well, who are these people what happened in their childhood how are they connected why is colorado important that they're flying to um and i just kind of started to figure it out piecemeal um, but yeah, about halfway through the book, I, I had to take about a month off and just sit back and try to figure it out because it, it got it got complicated very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. While we're talking about genre, your books are described as psychological thrillers, you know, which is a term that gets pretty loosely thrown around these days. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do, I mean, is, is that something you consciously set out to write as a psychological thriller or do you feel like that's just a bucket your books get put into by the publishing world? You know, a little bit of both. I, you know, I, I would describe my books as more suspense than thriller. I mean, there's a million different definitions of, of, of what a thriller is. My books are very heavy on somewhat ordinary people in extraordinary situations, extremely heavy on paranoia. That's important to me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I write paranoia well and I enjoy doing it. So I liked, I liked the idea that, that um, you don't quite know what's going to happen next. So yeah, psychological, for sure, psychological, um, psychological suspense, probably maybe a little bit more accurate. So what are you paranoid about? <laughs> I just, I, you know, that's a great question. And that probably is something that we can't unpack in, 
this episode. <laughs> That's a bigger but, uh, issue. Yeah, I mean, my my family asks me that all the time. Like, what happened to you as a child? <laughs> I just I just I enjoy I enjoy reading books and watching shows where you're just not sure what's real and what's not real and who could be trusted and who can't be. Um, I always find that very interesting. Now you live in Colorado, uh, like our friend Blake Crouch, who uh, we just spoke to recently. Oh, right on. And I've, I'll say that I think this book, it really is a great fit for fans of, of Blake's recent work. Is there something about living in the mountains that makes you meditate on reality and memory? <laughs> <laughs> You know, the mountains are pretty mystical, for sure. I'll get, I guess I'll put it this way. That my book, The Dead Girl in 2A, is a little bit of my ode to Lost, the show Lost, where the island had kind of these elements that were both good and bad and altogether um, a little bit magical. And I decided that I wanted the Colorado mountains to be that way because there's something about the beauty of the mountains mixed with the isolation that, that I thought served the book well. Well, your novels have all been standalone um, and seem to vary pretty wildly in tone and subject matter. Are you just chasing inspiration or do you consciously switch things up to keep yourself engaged? Yeah, I like to challenge myself for sure. I've, you know, and I have nothing against doing series and, you know, it probably would be financially a better move if I, if I did do series, <laughs> but I... I haven't found that story where I want to, I, I like the idea that I can kill anybody at any minute. Um, and that's, that could be the end of it. Um, but I, and I also just like the, and there, there's a thread to my stories, but I, I like the idea that, you know, Hey, I'm going to tackle this entirely different person and their life and what that's like and what's happening to them. Yeah. That, that keeps me a lot more engaged than, than kind of dealing with recurring characters. I learned a little bit about your your history with writing, and it seems like when you started writing, it was almost almost an afterthought, and then it kind of opened a floodgate for you, and now you're writing constantly. Are, are you one of those rare people that writing was not sort of a childhood a aspiration for you? Yeah, I think so. It's it was a very serendipitous moment, and you know, I come from a fairly creative family, uh, mostly painters. Yeah, I was it was I was 33 years old, and I was taking a class, and I was bored out of my mind, and I just I posed myself a question. And I tried to answer that question with a story. Um, it was just basically a murder mystery question just to keep myself entertained. And I couldn't figure out the answer to this question. So I went home and I started writing more about it. And then, you know, 90 days later, I had a 400 page manuscript and I, you know, I had a business degree. I'd never taken any you know, English classes, much less creative writing classes. So um, that started, you know, now 16 years of, of, of writing, continuous writing. And, uh, you know, first four books were, were never sold. Um, and the, the, the next six were, you know, so it's just been chipping away at it and learning from, I mean, learning from the beginning, you know, really literally teaching myself how to do this. Well, so you, you've been writing for 16 years, uh, right. is dead girl in two a, the best place for readers to start with your work? Yeah, maybe I, you know, I think that it's, it's a little bit of a departure for me. It's a little bit more complex and, 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 and fantastic than, than most of my other books. Uh, certainly the one that's gotten the most accolades is last year's release, Mr. Tinder's girl. It's an ITW uh, nominee and won the Colorado book award. So that's probably most representative of, 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 of my works, but, um, the Dead Girl in 2A to me is is the most challenging piece I've ever written, um, and and I think it, 
is is has been so far a pleasant surprise for for my fans. They they like the fact that it's a little bit um, more twisty and turny. Well, in doing our research about you, uh, we also discovered in your bio that you, your house there in Colorado, uh, you describe as being a Victorian, but not haunted yet. <laughs> you always have to leave room for the for the, for the events of the future. <laughs> well, do you, do you, are you planning something there? You never know. You never. You always want to leave something in the walls for the next person. <laughs> is is that something going to be you eventually? Yeah, you know, there's worse the worst ways to go out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the ne the next person who buys this house is going to have a ghost Carter whispering book ideas into their ear as they sleep. I mean, don't you just like the idea that somebody goes to remodel your old house and just tears down a wall and there's just something horrible there and just. I don't know. That delights me. <laughs> I always hope for like a stash of, of money or something. You, yeah, you, right. You, you want a corpse. Right. I want to dispatch those hopes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, good luck on your future haunting, I guess. Thank you. <laughs>